You're listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. Jubilee Montreal is a Christian church located in downtown Montreal that exists to share the good news as a spiritual family for holistic transformation. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org. So, week five of transformations. Uh, this is probably the most practical week of all. The question that we're really asking is, after the last four weeks that we've gone through, how do we, how do we live this out? What does it mean to live out a life of transformation? Uh, the Bible describes what's going on in our world in different ways, okay? It describes life through different uh, images and themes and stories. And one of those themes, which is going to kind of paint the background of what we're talking about today, is the idea of a war. That in the world today, there's a world going on, a war going on, a war that we can't see, a spiritual war, but that affects everyone in every place. Colossians, uh, a letter in the New Testament written by a, uh, a guy named Paul, wrote this in chapter 1, verse 13. For he has, God has rescued us from the dominion, like a kingdom, of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. So there's a transference. He rescued us from one, under one ruler and put us under another. This is how he sees it. And then in the letter of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of, key, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also... Lived, this is Paul, he's compassionate and understanding, he's not judgmental. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Not living in freedom, but actually being controlled, even though maybe we think that we do what we want. Being controlled by the cravings of our flesh and following after its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. It's tough scriptures. In your notes, it says the spirit world. Uh, you see that? And then just under it. If we think the physical world is all there is, we overestimate our, our independence. It's tempting. I don't know about you. I, we're, all, we all, we're all different. We all have different personalities. Even when it comes to faith in Jesus, we emphasize and de-emphasize certain things depending on where we come from and what we feel comfortable with. But for me, it's tempting to believe that the natural world is all there is. I mean that. It would, it's, it's more simple for me sometimes. I remember uh, I've taken, for some reason, lots of different things, personality tests and things like that, and trying to figure out what's wrong with me. My, me and uh, I'm just kidding. And, and often the results I would get, I would, you know, you can do. It's, like, it's not exactly scientific, but like what other famous people have your personality type. And when I would look it up, like the, the top, like, you know, I'm just going to guess, like, eight of ten are like the world's most famous atheists. And I'm like, I get it. I get it. That feels more comfortable for me for some reason. Once we begin talking about spiritual things, it can quickly, I don't know about you, but in the world I have for some reason lived in, spiritual things can get weird and scary and odd. And it's simpler sometimes just to believe in a materialist universe in which all we see is what it is. It's sad, but it's simple. And that's tempting for me, but in your notes, the truth is, according to the scriptures, if we want to believe that, the spirit world, if we want to call it that, constantly influences us, whether we're aware or not. 
there is another dimension, or however you want to describe that, that's constantly influencing you and me and our world. This idea, and this is just important for the background, actually, of this idea called discipleship, it's central to the way the Bible understands the world. And we can't understand Jesus or anything else without coming to terms with the fact that there's a spiritual world that's affecting everything. If we want to live in reality, I mean that, it sounds like a big idea, but if we want to live in reality, if we want to love God and love others, if we want to move forward in our own life, if we, want to f- we have to face this reality. There is more, and just simply said, there is more than th- that exists than we can see with our eye, hear with our ear, than we can, we can re- receive by our five senses. And this is a thing of faith, of course, but the Bible can't be understood without understanding that that's a huge assumption. Okay? In your notes, while there are many religions and beliefs, the Bible describes two spiritual kingdoms, God's kingdom and the kingdom of sin and self. And so you should see a little diagram, I think, in your book in which it shows how you transfer uh, from the kingdom of self to the kingdom of God. So let's think about this for a second, because that seems a bit simplistic. Uh, That's all that's going on in the world, is there's two kingdoms. You either live in the kingdom of self, or you live in the kingdom of God. But our world is full of religions and philosophies and ideas and beliefs. Tons. I mean, more than you will ever know. More perspectives than you could ever be aware of. The Bible speaks, though, of all of that reality in terms of two kingdoms. It divides it up in terms of two kingdoms. The kingdom of God, which is the place where God rules, in short. Okay? And then there's the kingdom of sin and self, which is, in short, the place where human beings rule. And that place, although it might not seem so bad, is the place where human beings are the hero of the story. That's the difference. Now, a religion, think, think about this for a second, then we'll move on. A religion is a system of beliefs and practices. Okay, are we okay with that? Whatever it is. It's a system of beliefs and practices that someone has, whether they hold it consciously, meaning they can tell you they're a Buddhist, or they hold it subconsciously, in which they don't really know how to describe it, or they'll say they're not religious. Okay? That is that kind of thing... Uh, a, a system of beliefs and practices that brings us ultimate meaning and purpose in life. Some of us have words for that, and some of us don't. Okay? But that's what religion is. People like to think of Christianity, and some of Christianity can be seen this way. They like to think of Christianity as a religion. And in the sense that everything is a religion, it is. Okay? And other religions, like uh, Buddhism, or Islam, or, or Hinduism, or Judaism, or some of these big traditional religions, others include shopping, or dating, or traveling, or careering, if I can say that, or money. These are all religions. They're just non-traditional. And the contemporary world is a place that creates religions all the time, because as a one of the reformers in the history of Christianity said, the human heart is an idol factory. It wants things to worship. It will always create them. And what we worship is what we've defined called religion. And that can be anything. But people like to compare Christianity to other world religions. If you've been in a university, you may have taken a class. This is what we do so we can understand it better. But what we find is an interesting difference when we compare Christianity with traditional world religions. All of the world religions, the big ones, the traditional ones, what they all have in common, and this may be 
a little too simplistic for you, but what they all have in common, other than Christianity, is that human beings are the hero of the story when you boil it down. I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. It's just true. In Islam, for example, uh, one simple way to see this is that the goal of myself as a good Muslim, simplistically, is to enter paradise. My hope, you know, at the end of life is to enter paradise. And the, the Quran gives me ways to do that. But there's one way that I can ensure that I enter paradise, and that's that I become a martyr, that I choose to die for my faith, that I choose to die for Allah. And if I do that, I'm insured entrance, no matter what else has happened in my life, just or unjust. And what that makes me in that moment, right or wrong, is the hero of the story not God. God is at my mercy, at the mercy of my choices, at the mercy of my courage. Christianity is different, or what we're going to call it right now, what Jesus calls it, the kingdom of God. He doesn't call it Christianity, okay? The kingdom of God is that God is the hero of the story, always. Our entrance, me and you, our entrance into the kingdom, like in your little uh, image there, our entrance into the kingdom and our staying in the kingdom is all through the work of Jesus and has nothing to do with me. That is a big difference, a big paradigm shift for the way we understand religion. In your notes, I hope that's okay. That's just a background. Earth is the battlefield of a cosmic war. Heaven and hell are battling over us, and while God will ultimately win, Satan is unrelenting, unfair, and deceptive in his efforts. And John 10.10 says this, the thief, or Satan, or the enemy, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I don't know what you think about Satan, if you think about it much. Um, I find that we have a harder time, some of us, again, have a harder time believing in Satan than believing in God. For me, I mean, even when I was a follower of Jesus, there was a time in which I really had a hard time believing in a personal, like a personalized enemy, Satan. I found it hard to, to grasp and believe, and it seemed a bit too out there and weird. I believed in evil, but the fact that it would be personalized was, was strange. And I think that the history of Christianity and some of the ways that people have gone off the side in characterizing what Satan is like or drawing pictures or telling stories other than what the scriptures say has not helped. But I would challenge you for a moment that if you believe in a, in a good God, then it's not a leap to believe in a personal evil force, if you will. And it might actually be, um, one writer talks about challenges Western people, enlightened people, to think about the fact that cultures around the world the majority believe in personal evil, a spirit world that affects the material world. And it's really only Western enlightened societies that have decided that that is a bit too far out there and can't be believed. And so what we're actually saying is that education or just the Western way of doing things is correct. And other people are just, they're not as evolved and they haven't gotten there. And so that, you should just consider that, number one. But number two, um, if you believe in, that something's wrong with the world, okay? It's not part of your book, it's just me. If you believe something's wrong with the world, that there's evil in the world or injustice, the Western way of describing that is that all, all injustice and evil stems from lack of education, poor social conditions. You just grew up in the wrong place, you know? You had the wrong people around you. And 
that's a really weak way of understanding what's going on. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't describe reality very well. And it also blames everything on how someone grew up, which kind of lets them off the hook, too. What's going on in the world and the reason evil exists, the reason something like racism exists, is because there's a spiritual force of racism that infects people. It sounds weird to say that. But that's the only way of understanding truly what's going on in the world. And the only way we could have mercy on a perpetrator is understanding that although they're guilty, that there's something else going on, too. And then things like lack of education, the way you were raised and where you grew up, strengthens that. It, it puts it on display and it increases your racism and it gives you words for your racism. But it doesn't, it, racism didn't start with a lack of education. It started with a fallen angel, the Bible says, who was proud, who wants to separate people from each other, sounds like racism, and separate people from God. And so I would just challenge you that this is important. It doesn't have to be the, whatever you think of as weird in your mind, but the Bible describes Satan as somebody that, that God is taking seriously and is ending, and we should too. So this idea of living in a war is what we're talking about today, and it's challenging for me. I didn't write this material. A friend of ours did, and I'm teaching it, but it's challenging. I don't usually think of my life like that. I don't really like... Uh, that, you know, we have images in the Bible that we're more attracted to and less attracted to, maybe we connect with, and me being in a war is not one of them. But I want you to imagine for a minute, I don't know, uh, I'm not assuming that none of us have experienced war here, but I imagine that most of us didn't grow up in an active war zone. But I want you to imagine for a minute, what would change about your life and your perspective if you were living in the middle of a war, or if you have... What would that change about your life today? About the decisions you would make, about the things you would do, about what you would think about, and what you would prioritize? In our world here right now, there are no armies marching through the streets. There are no bombs dropping, and it's easy to lull ourselves into thinking that there's nothing wrong going on. The writer, the, the people that are reading these letters that Paul's writing, for instance, in the first place, are, are well aware of violence and war. This image makes a lot of sense to them, which is why Paul's using it. But the peace that we experience is actually a problem, I think. The peace that I experience can allow me to make life mostly about me. It's the underside of peace. Yeah, I can make life mostly about my comfort, because I'm not really worried about anything catastrophic going on most days. So I can make choices that are mostly motivated by my happiness and my success. And that's seen as a good thing, you know? Like, thank God there's no war because I can make life about me. We don't use those words, but that's what we mean. And if that's us, according to the Bible, we're deceived. That's the word from the scriptures, is deception. That there's something going on that we are pretending is not and living as if it's not. The Bible actually states this in the scriptures that I read before and others, that we're actually, everyone, is in a massive war. In this war, many, many people die every day without having what Jesus uh, calls eternal life. He means that, whether we do or not. He means it. And while it's going on, we are really preoccupied with trivial things. Or we can be. Me too. It's not like a judgment on you. The question, though, to wrestle with for a minute is, do I accept and live like I'm in a war, or do I not? If we are, the fact that I'm in a war is going to drastically change the way that I live. I want you to think about that. 
According to the Bible, I'm in a cosmic war, whether I like it or not, or I think that's funny or not. And the best way in the story, if it's true, that Satan can defeat me and those around me is by telling me that it's not true and that there's such a thing as neutral ground, that I'm safe wherever I am, even if it is. It's called mediocrity. The Bible speaks about this too. So I want to just... I know that some of us might be closer to that, and some of us might think that's a bit odd, and that's not how we think about life. Uh, but I want to challenge you that the, the scriptures think about life like that and assume it's the case. So in your notes, the battle plan. How is God extending his kingdom of love on earth? How is he doing it? Through us. I love that's two words. Through us. In a grand twist the ca- in the story, the captives become the army that God sends behind enemy lines to be, quote, ministers of reconciliation. I wonder if the world is obsessed with war because we are living in a war. <laughs> but they've got it wrong. It has nothing to do with violence. Nothing. It's a distraction. Do you realize that? Like, like war in the world, and I understand that there may be just causes of war, and we can talk about that. But... It's a distraction from what's actually going on according to the scriptures. That's why Jesus is just really not concerned with defending himself physically because there's something truer and more important going on that he's focused on. Our, our purpose as soldiers, if you will, is to love people who are trying to kill us or other people or God or who are being killed. Our, our job is just to love people. And this is Paul's compassion. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus today and you think that these scriptures refer to you, any faith that you have is a gift from the hand of God. There is no, like, Christians can talk like there's a war and it's like the, the culture's at war and you're on the good side and you've got to get the culture to become Christian. And That's not what it's talking about. There's a spiritual war going on. And if you are in the kingdom of God, if you will, according to the scriptures. It's only by the grace of God. It's not by your intelligence or your courage or your correct faith. That's actually a sign, by the way, being in the kingdom of God is humility and compassion, not pride. So what's our motive? Our motive is compassion. Our, our weapon is love. And our message is what Jesus calls the gospel. So ministers of reconciliation. This phrase comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 to 20. And it needs to describe everything we do in life. Remember, we're trying to get, we're get practical here in a minute. Everything we do in life is defined by this phrase, ministers of reconciliation. The idea behind that is that everything we do in life, our purpose in life is to bring things back into relationship with God and other people. That's what we're doing. If we're not doing that, then we're not really doing the kingdom of God, like we're not really doing the work of God, because that, it can be as simple as that, although that can look many different ways. Often what we're doing instead of doing that is we're building our own empire, and we're focusing on the important aspects of being personally happy and successful. And sadly, the Bible on certain things is black and white, okay, to make a point very black and white to challenge us. And on this one, it's very clear to say that if we are not ministers of reconciliation actively, then we're not enlisted in the kingdom of God. We're enlisted in the enemy's army, if you will. 
That's how black and white the scriptures make it to challenge us to wake up, kind of. There is no middle ground in, in reality. That part is a lie. That's something to wrestle with. We're either working with God or we're working against God. We're either with him, bringing everything into right relationship with him and others through a message of love and sacrifice, or we're not. We don't usually talk like this, which is why I think it's important to talk like this. Okay. One of the things, uh, one of the things, actually, I'm going to skip that. In your notes, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 18 to 20, is our mission. Okay? If you're looking for a purpose in life, which I think is important, and it will be, uh, it should be um, specific to you and through your own personality and lens and gifting and desire, but it's easy to find your purpose. It really is, is really simple. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 to 20, we are ministers of reconciliation. The way that you're going to show that and live it out is going to be different, but it's clear already. We accomplish this mission through joining in your notes, a disciple-making movement. That phrase is an important phrase to think about for a minute. Okay, Matthew chapter 28, one of the Gospels talks about the, the life of Jesus and his ministry. Chapter 28, the very end, verses 18 to 20, Jesus' final words, you may know them. Jesus says to this, to his disciples, go and make disciples. And disciple, by the way, in the, in the Greek, it just means a student, a learner, a follower of Jesus. There's nothing overly spiritual about this word. It's literally the word that would be used for someone that's a student of someone. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So thinking about war, like what are you supposed to do if you're in the war then? According to scripture, the primary mechanism that God is using to win the war is simply this, which is kind of funny. Raise up an army of individuals who will take responsibility for other people instead of just themselves. I'm assuming you take responsibility for yourself. Raise up an army of individuals that will care more about other people other than themselves. That's the whole plan. You and I are invited to come to the place of, of making it our life's mission. I don't know that all of us are there yet, including myself. To make it our life mission to take the respons- take responsibility for someone else instead of ourselves, and to prioritize in our life introducing them to the love of the Father through serving them and loving them and whatever we can do. To introduce them to what it truly means to have salvation through Jesus and the real Jesus of history, and the power of the Holy Spirit to actually be given new power for life and live in it. What if I made that the priority of my life? from a place of humility and love and compassion and nothing else. That is what God is doing. God is very secure because it's like if you, if you had a war that you're trying to win and, and you knew that at the end of the war if you didn't win, you know, like if you're the leader that like you're probably going to die or you're going to die probably. And the, your, your whole idea, your whole strategy is just to convince individual people who are not interested to love people more than they love themselves and take part in this thing. That's it. That's what he's counting on. That's our job description. If we will accept it or if we accept it, that's the job description. It doesn't matter. So hear this part. It doesn't matter what else we're doing in life. Okay? It doesn't matter what I do for work. It doesn't matter in, a, in 21st century Canada... In, in a 21st century Canadian economy, it does not matter how I make money, 
how I pay rent, how I buy food. That's irrelevant right now. We all have the same mission, however we make money. How, I mean, how we make money today is different than how people make money in other parts of the world or how we made money 500 years ago or what we did for a career 1,000 years ago. Very different ideas. This is irrelevant for a minute. It matters that you're there. It matters that you, know, you, can, you can work for the kingdom of God there. But what's important is no matter how we make income, we all are on the same mission, the same life purpose wherever we go. We're all actually doing the same thing. This is for every human being, in fact. Jesus' words like this are an invitation to every human being, whether they believe yet or not. It's, it's an invitation to a life of significance. Something that we're all looking for is a life of significance, a life where we feel like what we're doing matters. If we would believe this, what Jesus is saying, if it's true, is that there's a war going on in the universe of which you can be enlisted and make an eternal difference no matter where you live or what you're doing. That would, if it's true, of course, that would lead to a significant life. Imagine the impact of each person that would take up that call. If every person would own that for themselves, not put it on someone else, but own it for themselves. In your notes, what does that mean? Discipleship, what does it mean? It starts with what the Bible calls lost. By the way, we're all lost. It's not like some people are lost and some people aren't. Everyone's lost. It's God's issue. So it starts with the lost and not the found, and it ends with multiplication and not perfection. What we're called to do is disciple people. It's kind of funny what Jesus does. We're called to disciple people that don't want to follow Jesus. That's what we're called to do. You don't, like when I say discipleship, I, I'm not talking about educating people in a church who are Christians. Okay? You do what Jesus did. You start with people who are uninterested or don't even know what you're talking about, and you walk with them. The disciple maker, if you will, what it means to do that is to live with intentionality in all of the relationships of your life. By the way, I say all this and there's like a, a voice in the back of my head. It's like there's a way to do this that is the opposite of what I'm talking about. And it has everything to do with your heart. And if your heart is judgmental and religious and proud, then you might as well not do it. You're going you're gonna to hurt people and do the opposite of what Jesus is talking about. So I'm assuming, by the way, that you're loving and that you're, you're kind of broken before God and you don't think anyone's better. You don't think you're better than anyone. So if that's who you are, then you should listen to this. If not, you should give up and then listen. In their relationships with people who don't know Jesus, the disciple maker loves them. No matter who they are or where they come from. No matter even if they're the enemy of you. Like they want to be your enemy. You build trust with them. You love them no matter what. Like, it's not about trying to get them to accept your beliefs. You love them as God loves them as his own child. And then you invite them over time to do what you're doing, to give up your life and follow Jesus and find the joy and the peace and the love that comes with that. But often, the problem is, the reason that we don't do that is not just because we're bad people, because we're distracted. And we're often we're distracted by all kinds of things. But one thing we're distracted by is our own personal perfection. This is like a, the enemy is about lies, okay? Which means they're easy to believe are true. It's usually not the obvious things that the enemy is really spending his time with. It's things like this. The goal of my Christianity in my life is my personal perfection. I'm focusing on becoming a perfect person 
and focusing on loving other people. The goal of my Christian life is my personal perfection. That is not the goal of Christianity. And this, we might say, of course, that's not true, but the, the Christian story is this. I'm not perfect, and I'm not going to be perfect. You realize that? We always say up here, like, this is a place welcome. No one here is perfect. I say it, we say it, for a reason. Because people have this thing in their minds, I don't know why, because, but that churches, even though, like, they're highly irrelevant these days, people still think of churches like they did, like, years ago to some image where it's a place of, maybe they are, I don't know. Uh, I gave up on a lot of them a long time ago, of, like, a place of, a place of moral perfection and judgment and comparison. This is not what this is at all. And it's not because we're not there yet. It's because we're not going to be there. That's a lie. No one's going to be perfect. There are issues in your life that I hope you get over, and maybe you do for the sake of the people sitting next to you, but you, you might not. What the, the Bible says, the actual story says, is that when you die, you will be made new. That's when you'll be perfect. Not before. That's not an excuse not to care. You should care because you're called to love other people, so you should care how you treat them. But we're often distracted by making our life, even our Christianity, about becoming a better person, becoming perfect. And then we'll do something, you know? The goal is not my personal or your personal perfection. The goal is actually what it says in your notes, this thing called multiplication. It's just a different paradigm. God's not interested in me being perfect. He's interested in multiplication. What it means is that you and I would take this message of love and imperfectly, this is the key, no one's going to do it perfectly, imperfectly, we would love other imperfect people. That's it. Imperfectly, I would love other imperfect people and I would figure out in my own life how to be a champion of love in the midst of their and my imperfections. That's it. That's why I don't want to wait for it. You don't need to wait for anything. In your notes, discipleship is apprenticeship. We learn by example how to follow Jesus and his way of love, and then we help others to do the same. Okay, so this, this discipleship, by the way, disciple, learner, discipleship, uh, life of being a learner of Jesus, helping other people become learners of Jesus. We're helping people to relate to God, number one, as sons and daughters. It's not in your notes, okay? Not as slaves. Discipleship is not simply this. Against what I said already? <laughs> Discipleship is not simply enlisting people in an army to fight a war. Okay? It's, it's not that. Although it is that. And it's not that. Okay? If you're not careful with... Okay, careful. If you're not comfortable with tension, uh, it's going to be hard to know God. Okay? It is that, and it's not that at all. Becoming a disciple of Jesus is learning how to relate to God as a father and learning how to relate to other people around you as brothers and sisters. Discipleship is a relational word, not a strategic word. It is strategic, but it's mostly relational. You have to be a learner of someone to learn how to walk with them in life with other people. When you're a son or a daughter, what's happening? This idea, the Bible says that not just that there's a war, but another image, like I said, it's because uh, God is complicated. Okay? That's why there are multiple images and that's why we should get used to this kind of thing and hold tension. Uh, another image, besides that there's a war going on, is that you and I are being adopted into a family. Okay? And what happens when you're adopted, or in, in, especially in the example from Scripture, I become a son, and what's restored to me is a sense of security and love. That's most important, really. It's pivotal that I get that, that I feel that, that I come into that, that I believe that, that I'm secure and loved in life. But it's not the whole thing that happens when you become adopted. 
The next thing I do is I receive my father or my mother, in this case the images of a father, my father's name, which is a thing of honor. We might not be in touch with that. I'm not really in touch with that. But it's a thing of honor, a thing of significance. I, I, I come into the family. I come into my, fa- my, my father's house. That's pretty patriarchal, but I hope that you can see what I'm saying. I come into my father's house, and I take on the father's image, the father's business. I represent him. I, I think that some of us are out of touch with this stuff, but it's healthy, actually. I, I am about what he's about. And you think a healthy child is like that with their parents, right? Or just think about a dad for a second. Healthy dad, good dad, healthy child. Healthy child is about what they want to be like their parent, you know? Healthy children aren't just secure, they're significant. They feel like they matter. And they carry a holy responsibility on behalf of the family. It sounds like this. My heavenly dad, if you will, my dad knows me. He, I, to believe it, coming to believe this, he wants me, just like a perfect earthly father, he wants me to have a bright future. He, he's doing everything he can to make that happen for me. And I know that wherever I go, I'm re- representing him. Imagine thinking about it like this in life. Everywhere I go, I'm representing my dad, and I want to honor him, and I want people to know what he's like. And they're only going to know that by how I live if I'm his kid. I want to live honorably and purely and vulnerably and honestly before others so that they don't know something about me. This, I hope you can hear scripture in this. But so they can know something about my dad. That's why everything's about the glory of God. Okay? That's my dad, the one that's invisible to the world, that's being made visible by people who have become sons and daughters of him. That's what honor is like, carrying honor. And it's hard to get that, number one, if we come from a broken family in which that doesn't make any sense, or we're just independent, regardless of our parents. But there's a freedom that comes in life, and the reason we look for significance is because we haven't accepted significance. There's only one, that, and we look for it elsewhere. The goal of my life, and I'm speaking generally, not that I do this perfectly, the goal of my life is not my personal freedom and rights. Okay? This is a cultural uh, value, I understand. The goal of my life is not my personal freedom and rights. The goal of my life is to introduce people to my dad. This is a different way of thinking, you know? That's an honorable life calling. Discipleship is sonship and daughtership. It is coming to experience a life of significance and security. Meaning, what I just talked about, I'm not talking about doing it out of obligation or guilt. I'm talking about doing it as the overflow of receiving love from a father and giving love back. And this this overwhelming desire to bring honor to his name as a privilege. You've got to like get outside yourself to do that, you know? Like you've got to, I'm, I'm talking, you've got to move beyond me, you know? It's, 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 it, it, the, the Bible doesn't use this term, but the idea that some writers talk about of an ego is really important. The scriptures talk about it in, in not so many words in terms of the flesh, okay? But what other writers are finding true in the world, the idea of an ego is what the Bible talks about as truth in a way, not exactly all they say, but you've got to lose your ego, because you can't be secure and significant when life is about you. You can't. 
the, the, what that turns into is self-delusion, pride, and hurting yourself and other people. And you never find security because you can't find security by yourself and you never find significance because it's never enough. A parent, so get this, a parent, a parent can love me unconditionally. So just get this one part then we'll move on. A parent can love me unconditionally and at the same time can tell me to do my chores. You understand? A parent can say, I love you no matter what and you have to do this. That's tension. God unconditionally loves us and he's telling us to share our faith, for example. You feel this tension? It's scripture. This is pretty clear. It's both. It's not like... We, we like to do, if you do one thing, then you'll do the other. I say that a lot, you know, like first receive the love of God and then you can give it away. There's some truth in that, but I want to throw some tension at you. God says he unconditionally loves you and at the very same time he's telling you to share your faith. He doesn't, he doesn't like soften the edges. He says he loves us and at this very same time he tells us to obey at the same time. He loves me unconditionally and he's telling me to be a disciple and to make a disciple. He's asking me to do difficult things and he's telling me that he loves me. And that's just for us to work out individually. There is a tension. We often respond when we get to a place like this in in relationship with God. Oh, I get it. First it was about unconditional love. And now I'm seeing it's really about my performance. It's really about what I do, isn't it? God's not pleased with me until I do A, B, and C, and D. I get it now. It was all about love. Now it's not anymore. But the truth is, it kind of is about our performance. Biblically. John, John 3.16. I'll just read it. You probably know this verse, so it's a good one to, to just quote quickly. For God so loved the world that he gave freely his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God loves the whole world, unconditionally it seems. He loves everyone. But you only get to be with him by having eternal life, by doing something, by responding. He loves everybody, but the scripture does not say that everybody will be with him, unfortunately. It says he loves everyone and those who, who believe will be with him. So what's that about? Are you saying that you don't love me? Because I still have to do something? Salvation is a free gift and we can't earn it in any way and we have to respond. It's the tension of a relationship. That's what it's about. We, it's about a relationship and relationship is full of tension and it's full of back and forth. We receive from God and we love him in return. It's not about performance. It's about a relationship. And if we don't understand that yet, the problem is maybe not that we don't understand God. It's that we don't understand what a relationship is. I mean, imagine that I say, this is fun. Imagine I say to Angelica, Angelica is my wife, I want a relationship with you. But you know what? I'm not going to do anything anymore. Because I really want to know if you love me. So I'm not going to perform. I'm not going to do anything. Expectations. I'm just going to be me. I'm just going to do me. And that's going to mean doing nothing. And I want to see if you're going to love me anyway. What's going to happen? If she's like a, a wonderful woman, 
she's going to try it for a little while, then she's going to be like, he's so selfish. That's not a relationship, right? That's called, that's for me, that's not being in a relationship. That's called using someone. But that's what we think about God. Like somehow theologically, like God must be beyond relationship, you know, but maybe we're just using God. If we hide behind receiving love in order not to do something that God has called us to do, then we might not have a relationship with him. That's all, that's all it's about, is do we have a, rela- literally a relationship, not just about beliefs, but about being in relationship with somebody. That's the tension of discipleship. So in your notes, discipleship is also apprenticeship. We learn by example how to follow Jesus in his way of love, and then we help others to do the same. Far and away, discipleship is still the best way to learn and grow, or apprenticeship. I mean, learning anything, this is probably the best way to learn something, is to be with someone who is further ahead, if not an expert, further ahead than you are, and watching them do it and learning from them as you go. You only need a coach. Catch this. You only need a coach when you need help doing what you don't really want to do in order to help you get to where you really want to go. You catch it? That's the only time you need a coach. When you want to help doing something that you don't want to do. That's why you're not doing it. You don't want to exercise every day. You need a coach because you don't, you want to get to a place of health, but you don't want to do that every day. So you need someone to yell at you and tell you to do it (laughs) or show you how or whatever. It's important to step out and try something. And this is just uh, another, I don't know that we'll have time for group time again today, but we'll see. Uh, It's important to step out and try it. Okay. Discipleship what I'm going to talk about practically now for a few minutes as practical sides of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's important to take a risk. I didn't plan on talking about going to the gym, but I think I'm talking to myself. Uh, in order to go to the gym, you have to go to the gym. He's <laughs> a soft heart. He understands what I'm saying. You, you have to do something. You know, like the first day you go, you may be uncomfortable and you don't know what you're doing and you're intimidated, but you've got to go. Like you don't learn how to, maybe you do, you don't learn how to go to the gym and like do it all right and then you show up at the gym once you're like, you're pretty good. You're not, no one's going to look at you weird. You have to go. And it's actually the same thing in what Jesus is talking about. You don't have to learn first and then do it. You have to do it as you learn or learn as you do it. Uh, I became a Christian as a teenager, and soon after that, I took a class uh, about how to share your faith. And I'm not saying, by the way, that all of my motivation was right, but I learned how to do this thing. Very, you know, like I, I don't know if you're familiar with Christianity, but there's a lot of ways that people say, like, from a good heart, I want to share my faith with someone else, and I don't know how to do it, so can you give me a tool? And so I was doing this thing where I would like draw it out, you know, and like here's images of what it means, what the Christian story is, and I just want to share it with you to tell you what I've come to believe and see what you think. And so I went through this course. And I was super nervous. And I just knew that God was calling me to share my faith with this one person in my high school. And so I was teaching this guy how to play guitar. And, uh, and uh, that was the first mistake. I didn't really know how to play guitar. So, um, and so I was teaching him, and I just knew, like, I got, I got to share this with this guy. You know, it's pretty awkward. But I was like, I got to do it. So, like, I'm, like, 
he's going to come over to my house and we're going to do the guitar lesson. And then when I get enough courage, I'm going to do this thing, you know, it's going to be super awkward and forced, but I'm going to do it. So I was so nervous all day and the guy comes over and we're, I'm teaching him guitar. And then like, I'm like, oh man, like I know what time he's leaving, you know, it's like five minutes left because <laughs> I've been hesitating the whole time. You know, I've never shared my faith. I just became a Christian just prior to this. And uh, so I'm like, hey, I forget exactly what I said, but I was like, hey, can I show you this? And like on the guitar case, like I got this paper and I'm drawing it out and it is so awkward. Because <laughs> the guy's like, where's this coming from? There's no context for this kind of like conversation at all. But as a nice guy who doesn't know what to do in an awkward situation, he's just quiet and he's listening and I'm drawing it out and we get to the end, you know, and I'm supposed to be like, so there's two ways to live. Which way do you want to live? And, uh, and his parent or somebody was picking him up. He was like, knock on the door, and he had to go. We never even got to like the punch, you know, or he didn't answer. But I think we need more of that, okay? Because I didn't share my faith right away after that for a while. Uh, I tried different things that didn't work. But I think what was going on in my heart as like a 16-year-old or however old I was, was right. I didn't know what I was doing, you know, and like, I really didn't know how to say it well. I was literally just mimicking what I had heard and I had memorized it. And, and my heart was like, I was so nervous that like, for sure he could tell. We never had a conversation about God again. Probably <laughs> it's just funny. Um, but I think like from what was going on is what I should have been doing. I was just obeying God. That's all I knew. Like all I knew is what the Bible was saying. Go and share your faith. Be a disciple. Make a disciple. I, I knew this guy. Out of all the friends, I cared about him. I thought he was open, you know? I thought he was a person of peace. We played guitar. It didn't work out, but like, I shouldn't have stopped doing that, looking back. That's what we need to do. So it, you should do that, is what I'm saying. It's just a challenge. You should write on a piece of paper and, and teach someone guitar and share the gospel with them and be super nervous and awkward and let them judge you and let them help you. Doing something that we don't really want to do that God's calling us to do is kind of the first step. I would challenge you to do that. If you don't really want to do that, I would challenge you to do it, not to wait until you want to do it. Or get a coach who can tell you how to do it and help you to do it. Because it's not about converting people, okay? And it is. Do you understand the tension there? It's not my message. Believe it or not. Like, I believe half of it sometimes. It doesn't change anything that I get paid to do something like this. I, have, I promise I have deeper and more complex questions than you do, I think. In which I wrestle through. I'm not saying I'm smarter. I'm just saying I think about it all the time. I'd be more comfortable if someone was just like, I'm telling you, it's not true. None of it's true. And you can just go live your happy life. And I'd be like, cool. Thank God. <laughs> but it's about what I've come to know is true in my heart to a certain extent. I want to share it with you. I forget, is it Richard Dawkins that said, like, there's nothing, as paraphrase, Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, saying, like, there's nothing that bothers him more than Christians who don't share their faith. That's what Richard Dawkins, that was, what's his name? No, it was like the guy in, the, the, the guy from, I'm like wasting the time I have telling you this. He's, he he, he uh, does magic shows in Las Vegas. Teller, Penn, Teller. 
No, Teller's the one that doesn't speak. That's, that's why it's funny, right, Penn? So, so he's, an, he's actually a famous atheist. And he's like, it just bothers me when Christians don't share their faith. Because what you're telling me is that you believe that if you don't believe in Jesus, you'll spend eternity in whatever that is that's not good apart from God, and you're not telling people? And it's as simple as just believing it? You seem like the most hateful person in the world to me if you believed that literally and you wouldn't tell someone about it. I was like, oh, Amen. So I just want to say there, uh, sharing your faith, this is like the main part of being a disciple, really do it. Just try it. Just make a fool of yourself. Be loving and share with someone. Ask them what they think. Ask them what they believe. Just get in a conversation. Do it in your notes. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. An idea of discipleship. Imitate what I did. Proverbs 18.1, he who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. We can't give away what we, don't, what we haven't yet received. We can't give what we don't have. This is just to add more tension to what I just said. You've got to believe it for yourself. Receive it for yourself. So it's simple. How do we disciple people? So catch this, because if you're now tuned out because I've said so much, wake back up and catch this part, because this is how we're saying, how do you do it? Besides what the example I gave you, how do you disciple people? If we're all called, we're all called to make disciples, not me. At the end of time, however it works, I'm responsible for my life, and the scriptures sadly say that I'm held like doubly accountable for what I teach. I don't know. But you're responsible for being a disciple of Jesus, and when Jesus says in Matthew 28 that you're called to make disciples of all nations, that's to you. Not to me any more than it's to you. And I'm just saying that's like I have to. That's like if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, that's all we're trying to do here is what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus and live this in the 21st century? But that's for you to wrestle with. How are you going to be a disciple of Jesus? So in your notes, question, how is your relationship with God, with other people, and with the world? That is this material's explanation of how to make a disciple of Jesus. Ask someone the question, how's your relationship with God? How's your relationship with the people around you? How's your relationship with like people outside of you? You know, like the poor, people that you don't like, people that don't believe in Jesus. How's your relationship with those people? Is it full of love? You're making disciples of Jesus if you're asking that question. That's it. It's pretty simple. If you went through your life just asking yourself and other people that question, you would be making disciples of Jesus. You'd be talking about things that matter. So to make a disciple of Jesus or what helps us, I think in your notes, what helps us apprentice disciples, we need three things. We need to know that we're secure. Okay? If you want to read it later, 1 John 4, 18 to 19. The main barrier to discipleship is fear. The reason we fear the rejection of people or the embarrassment of failure is when our identity is in our performance or in what people think of us. This is why we need the gospel, to share the gospel. When we invest ourselves from a place of security in God, knowing that we are loved and sent by him, we find both courage and compassion. You get that? If we're not secure, this is always going to be hard. I mean, like in that, but, but you should also step out. In that moment, I was scared to death of what that guy thought of me. Because I didn't really live like a Christian life among my friends, really. I just become a Christian. So it just felt like left field. Like, what is, what is this? Fake guitar lesson? 
John chapter 15, verse 5. I, Jesus, am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We talk about that a lot, so that's the, the meaning behind are you, are you in a place of security yet? Are you connected to the vine? Or are you not? Intimacy with God, as far as security, intimacy with God turns our focus onto him instead of other people's reactions to us. This is big. Now you want to live freely. My, I mean, my focus is on God, so I don't even notice the way people react. Maybe you're someone that needs to notice the way people react to you. I just tension all over this. <laughs> we don't need to judge people. This is key. We don't need to, I don't know if you do this. We don't need to judge people and decide beforehand who's interested in Jesus and who's not. Who's going to follow Jesus and who's not. We don't have the ability to do that. We don't need to think those thoughts. I, I'm not going to share that person because he's surely not interested. She surely is not going to follow Jesus. That's so silly. There's no way she's going to believe. I'm getting to the place of security where I'm going to think about that. God loves them. They're there. All right, that's enough. That's all I need to know. So I'm going to love them and tell them my story and share with them and listen to them. We don't look forward to the reaction of other people. We just respond to God by loving the people around us as brothers and sisters and telling them about our dad who we have in common who maybe they don't know. When we're afraid to share our faith, it's because our identity is not rooted in the Father. It's rooted in our own performance in pleasing other people. If we're not bold, as we develop a relationship with God, we will find our courage increasing. And we should step out today and share it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 in your notes, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So second, we need to know that we're sent. I can't emphasize this enough. Maybe you don't need to know this, that it's talking to you and me. It's not talking to a general... It's saying, I mean, Jesus is saying it to you. You are sent. God has sent you to go and make disciples sowing seeds of love and truth in people's lives. Here's one. To be fruitful, I feel this is a challenge. We must be intentional and generous farmers. Another image. For God only grows what we plant and water. I don't know about you, but I think maybe you're not. Maybe you're great. But most people, most of us, myself included, how often do I plant seeds? I'll plant a seed here. And a couple of weeks later, I'll plant a seed, or I don't know, a year later, I'll plant a seed. Now I'm frustrated because my seeds don't grow. I planted two. The, the image in the Bible of planting seeds is sowing seeds, and the image is taking handfuls of seeds and throwing them. You don't know where they're going to land, which is why some land on the road, and they don't do well, and some land, you know, that whole thing. The reason Jesus teaches this is because people are throwing seeds everywhere. That's how you're a good farmer. And some of them are going to land on healthy soil and they're going to grow. But I don't know how many seeds you've, you've planted before that happens. So in the image of Jesus, I mean in the story, in the, in the example of Jesus, if I plant a seed here and there, I should not be frustrated that I feel like eh, none of my friends are really interested in Jesus even though I'm finding like my whole life is changing for the better. But nobody wants to know. Nobody cares. I put a seed. Like that guy, you know. I, I invited him to my house. 
I did the whole thing. I was so scared. And I don't know. I don't know where you're at right now, you know. I'm sure he listens to the podcast. <laughs> we just, we misunderstand. What Jesus is talking about is living a life free of love and tr- like a, a life of free love. It's maybe not the right thing to say. <laughs> Throwing seeds. <laughs> Throwing seeds. God can only grow. Chalak is like, oh God. God can only grow what we water and plant. Ecclesiastes 11.4. I don't think I had ever read this. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. Galatians 6.9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Do we know that our job is to plant seeds of love and truth in the hearts of other people? Out of a compassion and a brokenness for the grace that God has shown us in life. I would assume, if I were you, that you are worse off than the people that you're talking to. You know? We can have an unhealthy view of ourselves. I get that. There's tension. But we can also, I just, I just don't like the whole, you're not going to save anyone. God is saving you. And he's saving them. And it's just a joke that he's going to let you do it. Do we know that our, lo- our job is to plant seeds of love and truth in other people's hearts? And have we received that? That's my call to you today. Have we received that in our heart individually as our life and mission? Regardless of our career, regardless of our other interests, regardless of our cultural backgrounds. This is not, you know what I'm talking about? These ideas are not Western, white, North American things. They're not. They have been adopted like that and, and cultured, but they are Middle Eastern ideas. I don't know. Jesus is not. Anyway, maybe I don't need to tell you that. How many times have you shared your faith with someone else? How many times have you done that? Do you want to be a person that does that? I just want you to think about those questions. No matter how young, how old, do you want to do that? How many times have you done it? Number three, we need to know that we're supported. Not only does God support us through his community, he also gives us power and patterns. Power and patterns, okay? It's like a motor and gas, okay? A motor... In, in this sense, a motor is like the mechanism, the way in which we disciple people. But the gas is the Holy Spirit. Some people like the motor, and they really don't like the gas. And some people love the gas, and they don't like the motor. And motors only work when there's a motor and there's gas. You get it? Some people love the Holy Spirit, and they don't like anything that smells like a strategy. Okay? Or a mechanism. Or something we're going to do that someone else told us to do. Like me sharing the thing, you know? Like the thing, I'm not doing that. That's so not the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And some people love that. They love that thing. And they don't want the Holy Spirit because that just messes up their plans. (laughs) But like some people love motors and some people just like gasoline and both, you know, don't work. And gas is really messy if you don't have a motor. (laughs) So just keep even that in mind. For the work of God, in your notes, the work of God's spirit to multiply from one generation to the next for the work of God's spirit to do that. This is tension. For the spirit to do that, we need simple, transferable plans and materials. You realize this is what Jesus is doing? He's teaching them specific things to do. 
how they're going to do it, what they're going to say when they go there, what to do, what not to do. Those things aren't wrong to do. And at the same time, go in the power of the Holy Spirit because nothing will happen if the Holy Spirit's not the one doing it, nothing eternal. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 in your notes, I think. Teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Even the most, uh, an anonymous quote, I could have just made it up. Even the most gifted warrior needs a sword. When we apprentice, we often need to start by doing something that someone else does first, and then we make it our own. That's what I mean again by, I think what I was doing when I was 16 was right. Learn the thing. Learn it by heart. Do it. Make a fool of yourself. And later on, I don't really do things like that anymore. And maybe I should. Maybe I should find a new one and do it. But I, I'm much more comfortable just sharing my faith as I am. But if I would have started like that, I would have never been able to do it. But knowing that I could sit down with this guy and just say, hey, you cur- curious about what Christianity is about? Can I show you for a second? I'm going to draw this thing. What do you think about that? I just learned. I'm just repeating what someone else taught me. That's a great place to start. We talk about this, especially as part of a microchurch. A discipleship path enables us to apprentice disciples who apprentice disciples. Think about this. I think it's in your note. The effects of doing this, simple things like this, are profound. If one person, if, think about me, if I made it my life's mission to win, to help a thousand people come to Christ. By the way, we do this. Like we love someone stands on a stage, you know? And then they get everybody to come to Jesus. We're like, that's amazing. That's what we need. We need some stadium. We need somebody with a microphone. And we need him to tell everyone. Because I'm not going to do that. We need to tell everybody. We'll have everybody come and, and, and say the prayer and amen. And then as we'll save the world. Why don't we just get more of those? We, we did that, by the way. I'm from that country. It's not going so well. Um, <laughs> If one person won 1,000 people, just one person, won 1,000 people to Christ every day, okay, we'll get a stage. Every day we'll do this. It would take 10,000 years to convert the whole world. You realize that? 10,000 years. If I stood on a stage every day and every day for my life, 1,000 people said, ah, I never heard that before. I'd love to follow Jesus. I'd feel like a big success. And it would still take 10,000 years. But if... If the same person led, think about you, if that one person led one person to know the real Jesus every year, one person every year, and then that person led another person to Christ each year, and so on, the whole world would be saved in 32 years. I love math. It's 32 years. Give or take. So, do you realize that, though? It's pretty smart what God's doing. It's not about a professional, and it's not about a stage. It's about every single person just being a human being, loving God, loving other people. It's estimated, again, that there are 200 million Christians in the world who say that they follow Jesus and believe the teachings of the Bible, and yes, that group is diverse, and you may not like some of them. But there are 2 million of these people in the world today, and by this math, if every one of those people just did that, they just love somebody and introduce them to Jesus in every year, one person a year, that same number, the whole world would be saved in six to seven years. You realize that? Six to seven years, everybody on the planet would have somebody that had told them about Jesus, the real Jesus, in a healthy, non-religious way. 
six to seven years. We don't need more stages. I, was, I, I, wish, I wish that you could tell me if this is true, Gustavo and Alice, and read it yourself in Portuguese. In your notes, when I dream alone, it is just a dream. When we dream together, it is the beginning of reality. When we work together, following our dream, it is the creation of heaven on earth. Brazilian proverb. When we talk about discipleship, we're talking about what could we do together? Not what could I do, or what could Elena do, or what could Angelica do? What we do here is we are a church of churches that helps people to start micro-churches that work to make disciples among people. And it looks all different ways. And it looks like ending injustice, and it looks like reaching out to neighbors, and it looks like all kinds of different things. I don't know if it's better than something else. This is the mechanism part, okay? It's not about it being better than something else. And it's something that we improve again and again and again. And if you've been here in the past, you know that we change things. And the only time we change things is because they need to be changed. Which is what anybody realizes when they're honest about what they're doing. Something that needs to be changed all the time. What we do is we only make disciples when we join something else that's reproducible. Not when we just stay on our own. Jubilee looks to be a disciple-making movement. That's why everything is about multiplication. That's why sometimes I sound like, and I have been corrected, and I will change, that I act like this moment doesn't matter. I want you to know that the, the, way, the place that's coming from, we downplay Sundays, and is just because what's in my heart is a disciple-making movement, and this isn't how you do it. It's good, it's a part of it, but it's not. But this is supremely important, and we're not going to get rid of it. Okay? And at the same time, people owning this calling in love and joining microchurches and having the courage to start other microchurches and sharing the good news with people and loving people who are far away from Jesus and uninterested and people who are far away from the center of society and marginalized and giving their lives to them and moving in among them. That's how things change. Not people coming to College of Sullivan. But it matters. And some of you will change by coming here. And maybe some of you are just ready to come here. And that's, that's great. That's why we do it. But a microchurch is that. It's a place for you to live this out, to be a disciple, to make disciples through your own context. In fact, what we do is way more open than even what this would propose. And that's that we'll help you make your own mechanism. Okay? We'll help you figure out how do you disciple people who you live among, who you're among. But also, we have ways to do that right away that you should adopt. We, we do this in five different ways, six different ways, including what InterVarsity does. Maybe your idea number seven, maybe in your heart is microchurch number seven that no one's thought about in a language that only you speak and no one else speaks. And maybe you feel like you have nobody and you're not qualified and you've not even shared the gospel with anybody yet. And maybe yet, microchurch number seven is in your heart. And you say, I know what we could do. I know who needs to know that Jesus loves them and who I don't know that anybody tells them that and I don't know that anybody's telling them about the real Jesus. I don't know that they have a non-religious open person who just loves them and wants them to know that Jesus loves them. Who can work to end the, the difficult things about their life alongside them that the rest of society for whatever reason ignores but who God has not forgotten about and I want to tell them that God has not forgotten about them. 
That's what it sounds like in your heart when you say, maybe you're microchurch number seven, maybe it's just you. We see this everywhere around the world where things change in Christianity, where things really change, where real authentic movements spring up. It's because everyday people get a calling, which is from scripture, to do it. A discipleship movement is not a formula, a program. You guys can come up, Manuel, Matt. A discipleship movement is not a formula, it's not a program, and it's not a special talent. If you're familiar with Christianity, uh, there is no, there's gifts in the Bible. We're going to end here, okay, guys? There is no gift of discipleship in the Bible. This is not like someone else does it. Now, we all have our own ways of doing things. I get it. Some are more extroverted. Some are more introverted. I don't know anything about that. But we all are called to disciple people. It's just an assumption in the Bible. That's all, that's all we're doing. We complicate it, but this is all we're doing. Together, in your notes, we embrace a faith-filled, love-filled lifestyle of investing in others. And here we go. Here's the end. Often, we'll come back to Satan. Okay, just at the end. Often, Satan's best tactic is not to tempt us with sin. Okay. Christians are usually worried about this part the most. Satan's best tactic is not to tempt us with sin, but to dull us to the battle we're in. All that is necessary, this this quote keeps coming up through recent events in the world, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil in the world is that good men and women do nothing. That's what the enemy's interested in. You probably heard this, uh, this kind of, again, like there's all these cliche sayings today. Uh, How to kill a frog. How do you kill a frog? We shouldn't kill frogs, but how do you kill a frog? Right? You, you don't throw it in a pot of boiling water. There's a lobster thing here. You don't throw it in a pot of boiling water because it'll just jump out. So if you are a frog killer, then what you do is you put it in a pot of cold water and you slowly heat it up. And the frog doesn't notice the difference until it's dead. That is how it works. Okay, This is how becoming some of you, yeah, we get stuck on the example. <laughs> Some of us are frogs. (laughs) You see it though? That's what the enemy's interested in. He's not interested in a big flashy thing that he's like, how can I destroy this person? He does want to destroy people. He wants racism in the world to increase. He does. He wants authoritarian governments to take over. He wants people to put their hope in democracy. He wants people to be alienated from one another. He wants marriages to be broken. He wants people that aren't married to feel like marriage is the goal of life, to feel lonely. He wants people to be separate from each other, to hate each other, to judge each other, to judge God, hate God, misunderstand God. To, to, I love this one. To think that Christ, to, to like believe in a religion that looks just like Jesus but has nothing to do with Jesus. That'd be a pretty good one. That's what the enemy wants to do. But the way he does that is not by slapping us in the face. It's by making us feel like nothing's a big deal. My life is mostly about this or just getting things done or being important or noticed or having people love me. Your notes. We have a vision of personal and social transformation, and this vision is a reality to the degree that we join a disciple-making movement. And the the way I'm going to give you to do that today, to join that, is to number one, be a disciple, which I'm going to tell you about in a second, and to join a micro church, or if you're involved in inner varsity or a, a ministry like this, then to join it and do it. 
one more quote. A vision without a task is but a dream. A vision without a task is but a dream. We don't even know what to do. A task without a vision is drudgery. It's obligation. A vision with a task is the hope of the world. To transform the world, holistic transformation is a vision. And a task is making disciples. You see that? Maybe we don't make that clear enough here. The problem that we have is an independent spirit. If you, if you notice one thing about transformations, we're almost done. This is a theme through transformations, is that independence from God and other people is the source of many of our problems. Join something, even if it's flawed. Join a microchurch, and what you're going to find out is there's problems with the microchurch. That's what's going to happen. And then, but it's much better to critique something from the inside than from the outside, number one. And then what's going to happen is you're going to get enough trust that the person is going to let you change things. And then what you're going to realize is that when you showed up, there was one problem, and you fixed it and created 30 problems. And then you're going to realize that that's all we do all the time. We know there are problems here and in microchurches because it's real, and we're changing them, and you should help change them. But you should also realize that you're just going to make more problems, and then we'll have someone else. I'll find someone new to come in and fix your 30 problems. It's fine. We're all in it together. But that is how it works. But join something. the end of your notes. We'll end on this. This is the age of decision where God offers humanity his terms of peace, but it's a limited time offer. This is something else that scripture says that we should wrestle with. After a new chapter will begin where God establishes his kingdom on earth in all of its fullness and the unrepentant are condemned to death. And this is something that breaks the heart of God in the story, not something that God rejoices over. Thank you for listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jvlmontreal.org.